Hello and welcome to Coffee and Code. I'm your host, Ashley Coffee. Coffee and Code is your weekly rundown for the latest top tech news from around the world delivered every Wednesday. On this show, you'll find a mix of the latest news in the tech world, including privacy, infosec, startups, and more, including interviews with experts, innovators, and practical everyday tech tips to level up your life. Subscribe to Coffee and Code to be notified when new episodes go live. You can also find me on Twitter at AshleyCoffee underscore, that's A-S-H-L-E-Y-C-O-F-F-E-Y underscore, and on Instagram at AshleyRCoffee89. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Coffee and Code. Today, I will be covering how PayPal is set to allow cryptocurrency buying, selling, and shopping on its network starting in early 2021. The Department of Justice filing a lawsuit against Google alleging anti-competitive behavior under Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And Adobe's adding content authenticity tool to the latest Photoshop beta. Let's dive in. PayPal to allow cryptocurrency buying, selling, and shopping on its network. This is huge for the cryptocurrency world. Today, PayPal Holdings Inc. joined the cryptocurrency market, allowing customers to buy, sell, and hold Bitcoin and other virtual coins using the U.S. digital payments company's online wallets. PayPal customers will be able to use cryptocurrencies to shop at the 26 million merchants on its network starting in early 2021, the company said in a statement. PayPal hopes the service will encourage global use of virtual coins and prepare its network for new digital currencies that may be developed by central banks and corporations. In a quote, PayPal said that they are working with central banks and thinking of all forms of digital currencies and how PayPal can play a role. U.S. account holders will be able to buy, sell, and hold cryptocurrencies in their PayPal wallets over the coming weeks. It plans to expand to Venmo in some countries in the first half of 2021. The company, based in San Jose, California, has 346 million active accounts around the world and processes $222 billion in payments in the second quarter. Cryptocurrencies tend to be volatile, making them attractive to speculators, but a lot less appealing to merchants and shoppers. Transactions have been slower and more costly than other mainstream payment systems. Cryptocurrency payments on PayPal will be settled using fiat currencies such as the US dollar, meaning merchants will not receive payments in virtual coins. Many central banks around the world have expressed their concern to develop digital versions of their currencies in the coming years, while Facebook Inc. led the creation of a cryptocurrency project called Libra in 2019. PayPal was a founding member but dropped out after a few months. PayPal, which has secured the first conditional cryptocurrency license from the New York State Department of Financial Services, will initially allow purchases of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies called Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, and Litecoin, it said and partners with Paxos Trust Company to offer the service. Really interesting news here. I'm glad to see one of the mainstream virtual wallets get into the cryptocurrency network. So 
PayPal's first, then, then Venmo, and then who knows? In big news, it has finally happened. The U.S. Department of Justice has filed a lawsuit against Google alleging anti-competitive behavior under Section 2 of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Interesting stuff here. So kind of into an overview, there, there was a big speech that happened in 2019 at a particular conference in Israel where the Assistant Attorney General Makan Dalaram gave a speech to the Antitrust New Frontiers Conference that laid out the conceptual framework within which the lawsuit fits. Dalaram recused himself from this case, specifically as he previously worked on Google's double-click acquisition. The most interesting part of the speech was focused on the history of antitrust, starting with Standard Oil. I uh, will save you from the speech, but you can look this speech up. But specifically in his speech, he called out exclusivity agreements as an example of this illegal behavior. And as the case was filed yesterday, contrary to the complaints of many Google critics and competitors, including the European Union in the Google shopping case, it's not focused on the search engine results and contrary to the still ongoing investigation from 50 state and territory attorneys general, it's not focused on Google's ad business. The focus is narrow and in line with Delarum's framework. Google may have earned its position honestly, but is it maintaining it illegally in large part by paying off distributors? The core of the DOJ's argument is at the beginning of the complaint. And I'll give you an excerpt that's a little bit long, but that is because these, uh, these paragraphs contain basically the entire case. For a general search engine, by far the most effective means of distribution is to be the preset default general search engine for mobile and computer search access points. Even where users can change the default, they rarely do. This leaves the preset default general search engine with de facto exclusivity. As Google itself has recognized, this is particularly true on mobile devices where defaults are especially sticky. For years, Google has entered into exclusionary agreements, including tying arrangements, and engaged in anti-competitive conduct to lock up distribution channels and block rivals. Google pays billions of billions of dollars each year to distributors, including popular device manufacturers such as Apple, LG, Motorola, and Samsung. Major U.S. wireless carriers such as AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon, and browser developers such as Mozilla, Opera, and UC Web to secure default status for its general search engine, and in many cases to specifically prohibit Google's counterparts from dealing with Google's competitors. Some of these agreements also require distributors to take a bundle of Google apps, including its search apps and feature them on devices in prime positions where consumers are most likely to start their internet searches. Google has thus foreclosed competition for internet search. General search engine competitors are denied vital distribution, scale, and product recognition, ensuring they have no real chance to challenge Google. Google is so dominant that Google is not only a noun to identify the company, in the Google search engine, but also a verb that means to search the internet. Google monetizes the search monopoly in the markets for search advertising and general search text advertising, 
both of which Google has also monopolized for many years. Google uses consumer search queries and consumer information to sell advertising. In the US, advertisers pay about $40 billion annually to place ads on Google's search engine results, results page. It is these search advertising monopoly revenues that Google shares with distributors in return for commitments to favor Google's search engine. These enormous payments create a strong disincentive for distributors to switch. The payments also raise barriers to entry for rivals, particularly for small, innovative search companies that cannot afford to pay a multi-billion dollar entry fee. Through these exclusionary payoffs and the other anti-competitive conduct described, Google has created continuous and self-reinforcing monopolies in multiple markets. Google's anti-competitive practices are especially pernicious because they deny rivals scale to compete effectively. General search services such, such as advertising and general search text advertising require complex algorithms that are constantly learning which organic results and ads best respond to user queries. The volume, variety, and velocity of data accelerates the automated learning of search and search advertising algorithms. When asked to name Google's biggest strength in search, Google's former CEO explained, scale is the key. We just have so much scale in terms of the data we bring to bear. By using distribution agreements to lock up scale for itself and deny it to others, Google unlawfully maintains its monopolies. The end. <laughs> that was a lot. Um, but that's pretty much the entire case here. And, and Google argues that this is deeply flawed um, as they posted on their blog. And uh, the Google founder, Larry Page, was very fond of saying competition is only a click away. So a lot to unpack here, but in short, increased digitization leads to increased centralization. And unfortunately, too many antitrust-focused critiques of tech have missed this essential difference. So, interested to see how this comes about. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot is going to unfold here in the next several months. But this is going to be a critical sentiment to keep in mind as this this case unfolds. And if I had to bet on an outcome, I would bet on Google winning. Apple and everyone else are free to enter into whatever contracts they wish, and consumers are free to undo the defaults that flow from those contracts, so where's the harm? And Google, of course, wants the conversation to stop there. As long as the argument is a legal one or even an economic one, aggregators have powerful justifications for their dominance. That, though, is why the real question is a political one. Are we as a society comfortable with a few big companies having such an outsized role in our lives? If the answer is no, the ultimate answer will not be through the courts, but through new laws for a new era. Anti-aggregation, anti not antitrust. Adobe is adding its content authenticity tool to the latest Photoshop beta. It's designed for crediting artists and fighting misinformation. Adobe will let some 
Creative Cloud customers try a tool that builds trustworthy attribution directly into a picture. As a part of a bigger software update, Adobe is moving forward with the Content Authenticity Initiative, a system it proposed last year. The tool adds an extra panel to Photoshop and using it attaches metadata that's supported by Adobe-owned art sharing site Behance. Adobe lays out exactly how the process works. The system lets users toggle four kinds of metadata, a picture thumbnail, the name of the person creating the image, some broad information about the types of edits that were made, and the original assets used to create the image. These are then cryptographically signed, so it'll be evident if anyone tampers with them. If the picture is uploaded to Behance, users can see all that information as a pop-up panel, or they can click through it to a dedicated website. The CAI panel is coming to, quote, select customers in Photoshop beta release over the next few weeks. Adobe's demonstration video that they showed during Adobe Max this week shows how helpful this system might be used. In one of the composite photo's original assets also use CAI. For instance, you can click through and see the full details for it as well, essentially giving artists a one-click attribution tool when they're building on other people's images. Adobe eventually wants lots of apps, websites, and even cameras to support the CAI, likely hoping to make it a de facto standard for image attribution. Interesting stuff, and for now though, Adobe is going to see how the option works within its own ecosystem. It's time for your weekly tech tip. So this is for iPhone users, and it's going to focus on the measure app that's built into your device, your iOS device. So as long as you're updated to at least iOS 13, um, you should have the, the measure app available. Um, you can search your phone for it. It looks like a black icon with a kind of measuring outline on it. But this is great whenever you need to measure something, but you don't have access to a ruler. And this also uses augmented reality, which is pretty cool. So to use this, you open up the app, you move your phone around, so we can get a, a grasp on the surface that you're about to start measuring. And from there, you can add certain points to be able to measure the width of a desk or the height of something. But you can also use it as a level, which is pretty great. So that's my tech tip. Use the measure tool whenever you're needing to measure something or level something because it's built into your phone. Before I leave you today, I would like to give a special thank you to Just Good Coffee Company, the official coffee partner of Coffee and Code. Just Good Coffee offers a carefully crafted selection of coffee from some of the most revered coffee producing regions around the world. Their commitment to offering exceptionally good experiences extends beyond just the products themselves, but extends well into the community, which is awesome. Their mission is simple, to offer good coffee and coffee for good. From cup to community. That is the sole purpose of Just Good Coffee. Be sure to check out their newest culture collection. These blends are carefully crafted and roasted to perfection, each with origins from within the great continent of Africa. You can find them at justgoodcoffee.co. 
I am personally a huge fan of this coffee. It tastes so good. Um, I drink it while I'm recording this and um, nothing but good things to say about this coffee company. Shout out to my friend Ray. Thank you so much and thank you all for listening. And be sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes of Coffee and Code go live. Thank you.